0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.30 The Battle of Bunker Hill As the American colonists came to grips with what had happened at Lexington and Concord, and what it had all meant, the delegates in Philadelphia had their own decisions to reach. Just as they were sitting down to get to work, they learned of the raid by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold on Ticonderoga and Crown Point. The signs were clear. War had arrived, and they were going to need to deal with it. The first step to addressing the crisis was the establishment of an army. Militia companies were not going to defeat the British. If the Americans were going to get through this successfully, whatever that actually meant, they were going to need a real army to do it. If there was to be an army, there would also need to be somebody to lead that army into battle. While Congress was busy forming this new Continental Army, the British and the Americans would engage in one of the bloodiest battles of the entire war, just outside of Boston. The militia had, thus far, proven adequate for the colonies. However, now that hostilities had broken out, the militia was never going to cut it. The militia was not an army nor was it ever meant to be one. These were local residents coming out to protect their towns and their immediate interests. Their leaders were generally democratically elected by the group, and often not on the basis of skill or talent, but rather position in the community. Through the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and then again as we will see at Bunker Hill, these militias could band together into something resembling a cohesive group but they were never going to be enough to defeat the British in a war. A real army was needed. Congress seemed to be well aware of the fact that an army was going to be necessary. On May 27th, they approved a Committee of Ways and Means to procure gunpowder. The bigger move would come a few weeks later on June 14th, when Congress voted to provide reinforcements to the troops in Boston. These reinforcements included companies from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. This decision, as well as another one that we're going to discuss in just a moment, effectively created what would become referred to as the Continental Army. To fund the new army, Congress approved the printing of $2 million in currency. The other critical decision made by Congress was just who was going to lead this new army. On June 15th, Congress selected George Washington to be the commander of the army. Washington's appointment did not come completely without complaint. Even within the Virginia camp, there was some grumbling about Washington taking the role. However, what the congressional delegates largely lacked amongst themselves was military experience. John Hancock fashioned himself a soldier and was interested in being named the commander. However, he lacked a very critical qualification. He had never actually fought in a battle before. Artemis Ward was another potential contender. The Massachusetts man had fought in the French and Indian War, having accompanied Abercrombie on his failed expedition against Fort Keralyn. Now he stood in command of the men in Massachusetts, on the eve of the Battle of Bunker Hill. The problem with Artemis Ward, however, was twofold. First, while he had at least previously fought in a war, he had absolutely no command experience. This led him to being overly cautious and averse to any kind of bold action. Ward was likewise seen as being just too old for the command by some of the delegates, although Washington was only five years younger than him. Second, as John Adams realized... Having a Massachusetts man leading an army of New Englanders in a fight outside of Boston was hardly a recipe for getting the other colonies into the war. Though others would point out that there was some concern about how New England troops would respond to being led by a non-New Englander. Much to the chagrin of John Hancock, it was John Adams who would both encourage Congress to act and give command of the army outside of Boston to George Washington a motion that was seconded by Samuel Adams. Despite the debate that it should be Ward or somebody else, ultimately Washington would be unanimously selected. Now, should you choose to ask General Washington what his feelings were about being elected, you would likely get a mixed reaction. On the one hand, Washington would show great humility, bordering on apprehension regarding his commitment. He famously told Patrick Henry that he believed his command of the army would lead to the ruin of his reputation. On June 18th, Washington wrote to Martha Washington in one of their few surviving letters. He said, When I assure you, in the most solemn manner that, so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it, not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family but from a consciousness of its being a trust too great for my capacity and that i should enjoy more real happiness and felicity in one month with you at home than i have the most distant prospect of reaping abroad now based on this it would be easy to conclude that washington was the unwilling and uneasy selection of the delegates who is going to act as the commander despite his great hesitation and wishes to avoid the appointment altogether. With all of that said, don't go feeling too bad for George Washington. Because, really, for somebody who did not want the job, he sure had an odd way of showing it. Harnessing the adage that you should dress for the job you want, not the one you've got, Washington made a point of wearing his old uniform from the French and Indian War to the Congressional Sessions. More than just dressing the part, Washington did have combat experience. He had been an aide-de-camp with Braddock on his fateful march towards Fort Duquesne, and had then spent time commanding the Virginia militia during the remainder of the war. Although it should be noted that Washington was also partially responsible for sparking the French and Indian War in the first place, when he ambushed French Emissary Jumonville. Reservations of both Washington and the other delegates aside, The Americans now had an army and a man to command them. The war, however, did not stand still while Congress tried to find its footing. At the same time that Washington was being selected as the commander of the Continental Army, the New Englanders outside of Boston were about to face their biggest challenge yet. General Gage was yet again desperate to make an impact, as all eyes fell to a hill in Charlestown, that would become the site of one of the most famous battles in American history. Thomas Gage was having a really bad year. His entire time as governor had been rough. Since July 1774, he had effectively lost control over Massachusetts. He watched his troops get bullied by the colonists in Salem. And then there was his mission to Concord. That not only was a failure in capturing Stalling cannons and arms, but also managed to start a war. Gage, of course, knew that the situation in Massachusetts was rapidly declining, well before a shot was fired on Lexington Green. He had personally given warnings to London of how the situation had really begun to deteriorate months before fighting actually broke out, and was all but brushed off by the Ministry. Gage's dire warnings about the situation did little but convince Parliament that he was not the guy for the job, and they started the search for his replacement. That search for a replacement would manifest in late May, when John Burgoyne, William Howe, and Henry Clinton would all arrive aboard the Cerebrus. Although Gage was not technically relieved of his command yet, It is never a great day when three of your bosses drop in to see what you're doing. Now, importantly, let's take a look at the calendar here. Keep in mind that the Cerebrus was not sent as a response to the events in Lexington and Concord. Considering travel times, the three generals were unaware of what had transpired a month before their arrival, until they reached Massachusetts to what had to be a very unwelcome development. Before we move on to Gage's worsening headache, let's take a brief moment to introduce the newcomers to our story. The easiest guy for me to introduce is William Howe, largely because we have already met him. The last time that we saw William Howe, he was busy scaling the cliffs outside of Quebec in 1759 and helping the British establish a beachhead along the Plains of Abraham. It is also worth mentioning, That he is the brother of George Howe, who, if you will recall from episode 3.33, died on James Abercrombie's failed attempt to take Fort Kralin. Do keep that in your mind for a moment, because it will be coming up again today. John Burgoyne was a well-liked general who had a reputation for being respectful to everybody under his command. This included the enlisted men. This earned him the moniker of Gentleman Johnny, amongst those who served under him. Burgoyne had distinguished himself during the Seven Years' War, and then later became an outspoken member of the House of Commons. All of this earned him a promotion to Major General, right before he set out for North America. Henry Clinton was promoted to Major General in 1772, after, like his contemporaries, he would distinguish himself during the Seven Years' War, where he had served in Germany. Upon their arrival, Thomas Gage would, at least for the time being, remain in charge. William Howe would move into the number two position behind Gage and would quickly start applying pressure on him to do something, to do anything. Following his defeat at Concord, Gage had not actually done much of anything. Boston was under siege by a bunch of militia, a situation that Howe was not amused by. Howe, tightening the screws on Gage, convinced him that they should immediately move and take the Dorchester Heights to the south of the city and Bunker Hill over near Charlestown. This would put the British in a position to lead an assault against the main rebel camp in Cambridge. Feeling the pressure from Howe, Gage quickly got on board with the plan, selecting June 18th as the day that the British would make their move. As had happened a few months before with Concord, Gage's plans quickly made their way into the hands of Americans. Commanding the New Englanders was Artemis Ward, whom we talked about a few moments ago in relation to the creation of the Continental Army and its leadership. Artemis Ward was not exactly alone in calling the shots here, and really it was the Massachusetts Committee of Public Safety that was making the decisions. They are the ones who had ordered him to take on the mission to secure Bunker Hill. Ward was more hesitant about the mission and the cost that would come with trying to hold it. However, having been overruled by the committee, Ward set out to the task. Ward decided not to worry about Dorchester at the moment. That would be a problem for another day. Rather, he ordered that the focus should be on preventing the British from taking Bunker Hill. Dorchester Heights was an important target, to be sure. It overlooked Boston and would have given the Americans the all-important high ground over the city. However, if you look at a map, Ward's decision to reinforce Bunker Hill makes more sense. Bunker Hill provides a much more direct line towards the American camp in Cambridge. Should Bunker Hill fall under British control, it would pose a more direct threat to the Americans than would Dorchester. The very first thing that Ward did was that he appointed William Prescott to take on the job of fortifying Bunker Hill. Located in Charlestown, the town had three primary hills. Bunker Hill, Breed's Hill, and Morden's Hill, which I have also seen referred to as Moulton's Point, with Bunker Hill being the largest of the trio. Charlestown was a triangular shape of land that was joined to the mainland via a narrow neck. Now, just to make sure that we are not getting confused by geography that has dramatically changed in the past 250 years, this is not the same as the Boston Neck, which was south of Boston. Charlestown is located roughly due north of Boston, with the Charles River dividing the two. The Mystic River ran along the eastern side of the peninsula. Bunker Hill was located around 300 yards from the Neck and stood around 110 feet high. Breed's Hill was some 600 yards south of Bunker Hill and was 75 feet tall. All the way to the south, you had Mordens Hill, which was a far less impressive fixture at just around 35 feet tall. William Prescott had assembled an army of right around 1,500 men to build the American fortifications. Heading out on June 16th, the group marched by night with the intent of getting as much of the preparation done under the relative safety of darkness where detection by the British would be reduced. It was right here that a fateful decision was made. The army was able to take Bunker Hill without resistance. There was really nobody there to resist. However, rather than following orders and fortifying the hill, Prescott and company moved further south to Breed's Hill, leaving a small garrison behind to hold Bunker Hill. This event remains somewhat shrouded in mystery. It isn't exactly clear why the Americans chose to deviate and take up positions at Breed's Hill. Nor is it known exactly who suggested it, though Israel Putnam seems to be the chief suspect here. The speculation is that Breed's Hill is closer to Boston itself, which could have potentially given the Americans a better position than Bunker Hill, should they choose to open up a bombardment on Boston. Now. As we just brought up Israel Putnam, I feel it is a good time to pause and talk about the last time that we saw him. Returning yet again to James Abercrombie's loss at Fort Keralyn 17 years earlier, recall that I had mentioned the death of George Howe. One of the men under the command of Howe at Keralyn during that assault was a younger Israel Putnam. In fact, when Howe stumbled into that detachment of French soldiers and was killed, he died in the arms of Israel Putnam. Now, nearly two decades later, Putnam is preparing for a battle against William Howe, the brother of a man who had literally died in his arms. Regardless of who had given the order or why, work quickly began building a redoubt on Breed's Hill. The Americans did an impressive amount of work throughout that night. By the time that the sun rose on June 17th, The redoubt ran 130 feet across the hill, with an entrance in the north towards the American-controlled bunker hill. The men then constricted an earthwork that was approximately 6 feet tall and surrounded the entire fort. Shortly after the first light of the day, the British became aware of what the Americans had been up to, and quickly the ships in the south of Charlestown opened fire despite what was a pretty significant barrage from the British. Little was actually accomplished by it. A few Americans were injured and killed, however, largely the shelling was just intimidating, as the ships struggled to hit the targets up on the hill. With the discovery of the Americans' overnight activities, the ball moved into the British court as to what to do next. Gage, consulting with Burgoyne, Clinton and Howe, ultimately chose the option put forward by Howe. William Howe would personally land his men at the southeasternmost point of Charlestown, at Moulton's Point. He would then move north along the bank of the Mystic River and hit Breed's Hill on their left flank, which remained more vulnerable. The decision to land at Moulton's Point was a serious error for Gage. Not because it was well garrisoned or anything, when Howe lands, he does so completely unopposed, but because the location required that the tide be high. When the decision to attack was made, the tide was low, meaning that the British had to gift critical hours to the Americans. Even once Howe lands, it will take a significant amount of time before all of the 1,500 British troops under his command reach the shore. During this long period of delay, the British guns would focus on the neck to keep the Americans from bringing in further reinforcements from Cambridge. The problem with this plan by Gage and Howe is that it gave the Americans significant time to continue to work on the reinforcement of that left flank. The fact that the left flank was now going to be the point of attack was not something lost on the Americans. Prescott was well aware that this was his weakest point. So as the British are waiting for the tides to change, and then milling around waiting for everybody to arrive, the Americans were frantically working on fixing the problem that the British leadership was planning to exploit. What Prescott did was turn to Captain Thomas Knowlton, who moved to a rail fence along the left flank some 200 yards northeast of the main fortification on Breed's Hill, where he ordered a breastwork to quickly be constructed. The men moved stones up to the fence and then covered the entire thing in a layer of hay. Now, there was still an opening along the left flank that Prescott needed to worry about. At the extreme edge of the peninsula, right along the bank of the Mystic River, there was about a nine-foot-tall bluff to contend with. This bluff prevented Knowlton from running his breastwork all the way down to the water. To deal with this, Prescott sent a small regiment of men, under Colonel John Stark, to hold the position along the beach. With his men having now all arrived, Howe began his advance on the American Redoubt, up on Breed's Hill. Here we find a curious problem with Howe's approach, that deviated from the standard military etiquette of the time. When launching an attack against a fortified position, the practice of the day was to move in a column hence giving the troops maximum flexibility as compared to long lines. It also meant less exposure for the men marching, as instead of being fanned out, they would be compact and close. This concentrated group of men then could go for a single weak spot and just punch their way through. Howe decided to go in a different direction. He assembled his men into battle lines, like one would have expected to see in an open field battle of the age. What it seems that Howe was hoping to do is that by moving into extended lines, it would prevent the Americans from being able to concentrate their fire. Along the beach to the extreme right of Howe, the left for the Americans, along the banks of the Mystic River, Howe did use a column for the advance as there was not enough room for lines. The plan for Howe was to attack the American flanks. He planned to have one column move towards the American right and Charlestown. This group was never meant to be the main attacking force, but rather was meant to help spread the American defenses out. Under the command of Robert Pigot, his troops quickly ran into resistance from the American sharpshooters who had taken up positions throughout Charlestown. Rough terrain, high grass, and pressure from the Americans quickly threw the British left into disarray. Making matters even worse, despite bringing artillery with them, they brought the wrong size of ammunition rendering everything completely useless. The British Navy, sensing the distress around Charlestown, opened fire on the American position, and soon Charlestown was in flames. Although things were not going great for Pigot, that was just the diversionary group. William Howe himself was going to lead the British right against the, how assumed, weak American left. The problem for Howe is that during that period of delay the Americans had made significant improvements to their left. Improvements that Howe was seemingly unaware of. For the Americans, both the men under Stark along the beach and Knowlton behind that rail fence would show a stunning amount of patience in the face of the approaching British troops. Those British troops on the far right, those in the column marching along the banks of the Mystic River, quickly found themselves in a pretty rough spot. As we discussed before, The bank of the river was narrow and had a bluff on the left, and the river on the right. The men under Stark held their fire until the British column was nice and close. 18th century muskets were anything but accurate at long range. However, the Americans waiting for as long as they could did allow the British to close within a range where the muskets were accurate. When Stark ordered his men to fire... They hit their targets because they were so close by and tightly packed. The men on the beach had nowhere to go, nowhere to maneuver away from the Americans, who were now absolutely opening up on them. The British fought bravely, but it was immediately clear just how dire their situation was. They were being slaughtered by the Americans, and there was not really anything that they could do about it. In short order, the British along the Mystic River had begun pulling back. In some of the bloodiest fighting of the day, nearly 100 British soldiers now lay dead on the beach. Meanwhile, back on top of the bluff, Howe was leading the bulk of his troops forward, running slightly behind the men who had been down on the beach. Although both groups had started out at about the same time, it was Howe, who found difficulty with his approach, as obstacles such as fences forced him to keep having to break up his lines and then reform them on the other side. This means that the men down on the beach had managed to move ahead of Howe. Things did not go any better for Howe than they did for either Pigot or the men along the beach. Again, the Americans behind the rail fence remained patient and waited until Howe and company were within accurate musket range. Knowlton had organized his men into two parallel lines, with the intention that one would be firing while the other was reloading and preparing their own volley. This is exactly what happened. As was the case down on the beach, the men on top of the bluff also found themselves being mowed down by American forces, who were busy firing from well-covered positions. Just as with the men on the beach, They too soon found themselves rapidly pulling back under intense American fire. Just like that, the Americans had repulsed the first British assault. The first assault on Bunker Hill had ended poorly for the British. They made no progress and paid for the attack with very heavy casualties. Howe was not done yet, however, and quickly regrouped for a second attempt on the American Redoubt on Breed's Hill. The first charge on Breed's Hill had been bad, though it had not been bad enough to make Howe quit the field altogether. After everybody had pulled back out of the most immediate danger, Howe quickly rallied his men into making a second charge. The second assault would be a bit different than before. First, Howe recognized that the assault on Stark's position along the beach was completely pointless. There was nothing he was going to be able to do to dislodge Starkoria's men, and decided that the prudent move was just to bypass them altogether, and go crashing through the American lines in force at the rail fence. The task of taking on the rail fence fell to the Light Infantry, while Howe and his grenadiers planned to take a head-on strike on the fort. Adopting more modern practices, Howe abandoned the extended battle lines for a group moving directly on the fort, and shifted into more flexible columns. As we had talked about earlier, the column approach was standard military practice at the time for approaching a fortified location. Imagine the column acting kind of like a battering ram. The front of the battering ram may get damaged, but the men behind would just keep coming, until eventually somebody would punch their way through. Once again on the British left, Pagot would be performing his own flanking maneuver, closest to the now-burning Charlestown. The result of the second assault, however, was much the same as the first. The Americans were able to effectively cut down the approaching British troops, who found themselves dealing with near-constant musket fire. For half an hour, this is how it went. The British trying to move forward, literally at all, while the Americans just kept cutting them down. Yet again, the British troops could only take so much and were forced to pull back. The Americans had just defeated the British for the second time. The day was not going well for the British. Twice they had moved on the American Redoubt on Braids Hill and twice they had been repulsed, each time suffering heavy losses. On a day that was quickly approaching an unmitigated disaster, Lord Howe was desperate to get something, really anything, out of the day. His losses were already serious and walking away without anything to show for those losses would have just compounded an already terrible situation. The Americans had everything going for them up to this point. They had managed to be extremely efficient in their attack and had made British progress nearly impossible. Now as they are facing a third attack, the Americans found themselves running into a serious problem. Ammunition and powder had been low all day. However, after the two previous British assaults, they were now quickly approaching a critical point. The Americans certainly were not going to hold Breed's Hill without powder. Part of the efficiency of the day for the Americans can, and should, be attributed to Prescott. Their patience during the day largely came as a result of Prescott doing everything in his power to conserve that precious ammunition. As Hal prepared for yet another attempt on Breed's Hill, he had a huge advantage that he had not enjoyed previously. Although the Americans had done an impressive job of not wasting their ammunition, there was the inescapable fact that the Americans were, in fact, dealing with a serious supply shortage. They had repulsed the British regulars twice, an impressive feat. The cost had been, however, that the American supplies were now virtually completely depleted. Howe was likewise enjoying 400 fresh replacements, who had yet to exhaust themselves charging at the American positions. There was not going to be anything fancy about the third assault. Rather than a complicated flanking maneuver predicated on precise timing from multiple armies, Howe intended to just slam into the redoubt with everything he had. Forming into columns, the British advanced under the cover of artillery fire. The Americans inside of the redoubt waited as long as they could as British grenadiers approached their position. As with the three previous assaults, the concentrated American fire did cause immediate damage, particularly on the British right, where Pagot and the Marines under his command were brought to a quick stop. Among those killed with the Marines was Major Picarin, who had just two months earlier led the British regulars onto Lexington Green. Although Piguet was brought to a stop, it was all too much for the Americans, who, after a hard day of fighting, had exhausted their powder and ammunition. With the constant American fire finally ceasing, Howe's grenadiers were able to breach the redoubt. Realizing that it was all over, the Americans holding Breed Hill quickly withdrew from the redoubt. Those who failed to get out in time met their fates at the end of British bayonets. The Americans, as they retreated from Breed's Hill, came under heavy British fire. Among those struck was Dr. Joseph Warren, who was hit in the face and died instantly. Warren had, days earlier, been granted a commission as a general, and was offered a command earlier in the day. However, as he had not yet personally received his commission, he declined and instead chose to fight as a regular soldier. The death of Joseph Warren would send reverberations throughout New England, where he had become one of the leaders amongst the Whigs. And now he was dead. Abigail Adams, writing to John Adams on July 31st, says of the treatment of Dr. Warren that, We learn from one of these deserters that our ever-valued friend Warren, dear to us even in death, was not treated with any more respect than a common soldier. But the savage wretches, called officers, consulted together and agreed to sever his head from his body and carry it in triumph to Gage, who no doubt would have grinned horribly a ghastly smile. Instead of imitating Caesar who had far from being gratified with so horrid a spectacle as the head of even his enemy turned away from Pompey's with disgust and gave vent to his pity in a flood of tears. In the weeks following the Battle of Bunker Hill, there would be numerous rumors of the barbaric treatment that had befallen Dr. Warren in death. These stories would begin to paint the narrative of the American Revolution's first martyr. The retreat from Breed's Hill ended up being the most dangerous part of the entire engagement for the Americans. More Americans died during the retreat than had at any other point of the day. Although the retreat was hasty, it remained at least somewhat orderly, orderly enough that the British were unable to even out the casualty numbers. As there had been no advance on the American left, Knowlton and Stark were able to provide cover fire for those fleeing the redoubt. A consequence of taking the fort, the British likewise had lost cohesion, and by the time that Henry Clinton, who had come over right in time for the end of the battle, had gotten the troops back into meaningful units to pursue the fleeing Americans, it was too late. The Americans had given up not only Breed's Hill, but the entire Charlestown Peninsula. The British had won the day by then prevailing military convention. They had captured their objective, and had managed to force the Americans off of the Charlestown Peninsula altogether. However, what had transpired on that mid-June day in 1775 was the very definition of a Pyrrhic victory. Should the British win another battle like Bunker Hill, they were doomed. The Americans had suffered just over 400 casualties on the day, with 140 of those being fatalities. Although those losses were serious, it pales in comparison to the victorious British, who suffered 1,054 casualties, including 228 dead. Following the battle, Thomas Gage would quip that the Provincials had never shown this kind of tenacity against the French, and that the mistakes of the day were a direct result of the British underestimating the Provincials' resolve. The response to the events at Bunker Hill would spread throughout both the colonies and London alike, as both sides found themselves questioning the outcome of the battle. Although the British had won the day, the Americans had managed to force them into paying a previously unfathomable cost for it. Next time, we are going to take our story into the summer of 1775. Both the British and the American populations are going to find themselves having to grapple with what had just happened at Bunker Hill. A few weeks after the battle, George Washington would arrive to assume control over the American forces. At the same time, Congress is both laying out the groundwork for an attack on Canada, while another faction works on attempting to restore the former peace between Britain and her colonies. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as the war enters its first summer.